quote of the day today on time.is is do two things at once is to do neither. Depthy. Hmm. Hmm. Someone's never made indie games. <laughs> awesome. I, I I don't know. I subscribe to that. You I like think it? I think splitting effort is uh, is dangerous, and uh, uh, folks who think they can do it um, might be cheating themselves. Some people can, and that's impressive. Mm. But I certainly can. There's a quote from the Civilization Four tech tree, read in Leonard Nimoy's voice, that I think about a lot, and he's like, "If, if you, you chase, chase two, two rabbits, rabbits you, you will lose, lose them both." Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the CanadianGameDevs.com podcast. Uh, Steven here with a very special interview I'm excited to have with no pressure. I believe our highest profile guest ever come on the program until I published the Kid Koala interview. But uh, <laughs> we are joined by several team members from the Tunic team. Of course, 2022's, you know the pitch, isometric adventure game about a tiny fox in a big world. Uh, originally conceived by fellow Haligonian Andrew Shouldis, while the PS5 was still a twinkle in Mark Cerny's eye. But it's come a long way since then. Um, we've got the team here today for some questions around the game's one-year anniversary, released March 16th, 2022, for Mac, Windows, and several poorly named Xbox devices, and then September 27th for Switch, PS4, and PS5. I got that right? I, You know, I forget. It's been so long. It's all a bit of the past year has been a bit of a blur. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. It sounds right to me. Yeah. We'll trust the lovely folks at Wikipedia for this one. Uh, <laughs> could everyone, uh, for the audience, introduce yourselves, where you're working from, and what your role was on Tunic? Uh, hi, my name is Andrew Schuldeis, and I'm calling from Halifax, Nova Scotia. And I was the uh, primary developer and designer on Tunic. Uh, my name is Kevin Regemi. I am calling in from Vancouver, British Columbia. And I am creative director at Power Up Audio. I co-run this team with Jeff Tangstock. And we do sound and music and voiceover support for a variety of games, Tunic included, for which I served on as audio director. A lot of Canadian games. I really like a lot of a lot of Canadian stuff. Yeah. Hi, I'm Eric Billingsley. Um, I'm based in Ottawa, Ontario, and uh, I was the level artist on Tunic. So I was kind of like taking levels that were in their initial stages and making them look nice. And I also did some sort of like tech arty stuff and some bug fixing on the game. Um, and I also released. My own game is under the name, the name uh, Sparse Game Dev, um, and I'm sort of like a generalist jack of all trades game person, I guess. You, you chase a lot of rabbits. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, I chase a lot of rabbits. What's everyone's earliest memory of a video game? Not necessarily playing it, but like, what's the first time you remember a video game? I always get some fun ones. Hmm. I, I want to say it's like the classic Super Mario Brothers sort of thing, but I feel like maybe at, you know, my grandparents' house, there was an Intellivision set up or something like that, or, or maybe my next door neighbor having a, a Commodore 64 and playing the Ghostbusters game. Mm. Like that, that's reaching pretty far back for me. 
Uh, I was just doing a Google search, so I couldn't recall. There was, um, I, I'm definitely a, a, a DOS baby, and my family had a somewhat yearly tradition at Christmas time. My parents would get us computer games that our current system couldn't run, and we would get all the peripherals of these of these like for a new computer all wrapped separately and you need to build the computer that day to play the new game you got and so yeah we were always like building new stuff and i think i think the earliest memory of a game was playing like these various dos games i think they were played from the same like hub like you run some app and it had things like uh like gorillas and like there was a horse racing thing. There was no real game. You just like press go and then a horse's race across the screen. You just like pick one. <laughs> it's like six. And like you see if horse six wins. Uh, there was like a Monopoly for a DOS game and it looked real rough. It's all in ASCII art. Like the board was all in ASCII art on the screen. That's gorgeous. Yeah, so a lot of, a few sprint mine. Oh, like shooting gallery. That's fun. By Nels Anderson. I remember An shooting gallery. Do you recall yeah. shooting gallery? It's by yeah, Nels yeah, yeah. Anderson. And it's not huh. by the Nels Anderson who made Firewatch. <laughs> okay. <That's funny. laughs> I sent Nels uh, that that uh, screenshot of the game. It's like by Nels Anderson. I'm like, aren't you like 38 years old or something? <laughs> like, what the hell? Anyways, yeah, variety of DOS things for sure. Eric, please. Yeah, uh, I think I'm in sort of the same boat as Kevin. Like, if we when I was a little kid, we my dad got a monochrome IBM laptop in the early 90s and I don't think Kid Picks counts as a game but that was one of the first things I remember <laughs> playing around with and then also um, Captain Comic I don't know if anyone's played that, played that I also remember the gorillas thing which I think is the thing you were talking about Kevin with they're throwing bananas, bananas. it's like, it's like scorched sort, of, sort of like a, yeah yeah exactly like early so, early worms yeah a, a Q basic sample program yeah yeah I remember that and i remember my dad like messing around with the code and messing the game up um, <laughs> how much did that laptop weigh <laughs> laptop in the early 90s you yeah, said it you was, a, like... it was, yeah it was a monochrome uh, ibm laptop it came with a separate numpad that you could plug into like a some kind of oh, serial port so cool. or something um, it's pretty heavy i actually tried to get it running last time i visited my parents but it, i think the power supply is dead dang uh <laughs> Stepping away from the past, but maybe not entirely, into a conversation about Tunic. Is Tunic a Canadian game? Like, is that fair to say? I'm talking to three <laughs> Canadians who worked on it, but a lot of people worked on it. Um, what do you think? Uh, I, I would I would consider it um, Canadian. I think, it, I mean, it was published by an American company. Mm. Um, the musicians are not from Canada, but have spent a lot of time here and have family in Canada. So I think on the whole, by weight, this game is... By far, mostly Canadian. Majority Canadian. It probably yeah. meets the, the CanCon requirements, if such a thing exists in video <laughs> games. Yeah. It does. There's at least one Canadian Easter egg in the game. <laughs> Ooh, that leads into my part two of that question. I was going to ask, like, what in Tunic itself in the game, would, is there anything Canadian in the game that was Canadian-influenced? Or The one I pull from a lot is A Short Hike is based on his trips to Algonquin Park. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, of course, it's the same outhouses, the same signs. I could recognize the fonts. Is there anything in Tunic <laughs> that's especially Canadian that people might not realize? Well, Kevin raised uh, two fingers because there, I guess there's actually two references to a particular 
uh, way of saying things. But uh, but personally, I'll mention that, I mean, I spent a lot of time, in, like I grew up in, in Dartmouth, mm. which is the sort of like one of the sister cities to, to Halifax. And I spent a lot of time in Shuby Park there, sort of wandering around and making maps and trying to find, you know, cool new places of the forest that we hadn't explored yet. Um, and I feel like that was certainly formative for me. And maybe a little bit of that is, is captured in in the game mm. the classic uh, Miyamoto in the sandbox for Pikmin story <laughs> are, are you deftly dodging the question then Andrew <laughs> well I was I was gonna leave that one for you I know that there is I mean we can be cagey about it but there's uh, you can you can go for it if you like I mean I feel like the world knows what's happening in the game at this point it's not like we need to be too secretive about, about these kind of things but Spoilers ahead. Yeah, spoilers ahead, exactly. So if you were unaware, the cipher in the game is indeed a cipher. You can you can decipher it. You can learn what is being written, what is ha- what has been written in the manual and so forth, what is being said by these various ghostly NPCs and so forth. And so uh, <laughs> I said I was audio director on this project. I also proofread basically the entire game. So we had to go through and make sure that there was consistent consistency across the manual, that things were spelled, quote unquote, the same way. And uh, what's interesting is that this, this cipher in the game is phonetic in its structure. So Andrew had to sit in his office and say things in a very controlled and deliberate way to decide how to spell things right so the thing is there was some sure there was some inconsistency here and there like is it is it like uh improvement or is it is it improvement and this is an important distinction to like get consistent over time but back to your question though steven you were saying is this is it a Canadian game? Are there Canadian Easter eggs? So one thing is I kept hitting moments throughout my proofreading uh, efforts where a word would be so Canadian. Like it would be, you know, like a boat <laughs> <laughs> and not about. Right. And I'm like, we got it. We can't be that Canadian with these. Like people will be confused reading this stuff. But uh, yeah, there. P- perhaps I will. I will simply leave it by saying that not every single Canadian word was removed from the game. We'll put it that way. Okay. Is that fair, Andrew? Yeah, that's perfect. Okay, great. So canonically, Tunic is taking place in Shuby Park on a microcosm <laughs> scale. Yeah. Uh, I, I like that idea a whole lot. talking about tunic quote the core of it was the desire to make a game that captured the same feelings of playing a game as a kid like an nes game playing the game flipping through the manual trying to understand the cryptic world uh for something like me i never had that experience uh the first home console i got was like the ps3 and they were like phasing out manuals big time um but that experience is something that i really liked and and uh 
it honestly inspired me to actually just look up manuals and start reading them. And, and I got into like the, all the N64 um, manuals for like Super Mario and stuff. Um, I was curious when creating instruction manual in Tunic, were there any real world manuals that you were referencing that gave you that experience as a kid that you were trying to pull those nuances out of? Or anyone yeah, on absolutely. the team? Yeah. There's a, there's a handful of them okay. that are, that I hold in my mind as like, you know, pr- precious memories. Um, you know, the, the Super Mario Brothers one, obviously, I never actually had a copy of NES Zelda when I was a kid, but the Zelda, I had Zelda 2 a little bit later in life, but going back through those, I think they were very cool. Um, like, I, I definitely spent time flipping through somebody else's version of the Zelda 1 manual, mm-hmm. as well as um, Metroid 2. Um, which is a, a Game Boy game. I spent some time as a like child who could barely read going through those. Um, and there's also this this one that's called like an Explorer's Handbook mm. that was shipped with Final Fantasy in North America, which is a instruction book that tells you how to play, but it also sort of explains how to play a JRPG hmm. because presumably the people who were importing it thought that no one would understand how this worked. Like you have to equip all of the stuff that you buy and where do you go next? You need to take notes. And so it's this big, thick book. I've I've got it over there that uh, sort of outlines basically exactly what you're supposed to do. It's a strategy guide for the first half of the game. And uh, anyway, that was also pretty formative, but going back and looking at them, none of them really had the right layout or like textural density that i wanted and so the thing that we ended up with in tunic is sort of like this weird amalgam of a bunch of things from a bunch of different eras without necessarily going you know page for page uh, of an existing piece of work an instruction manual nintendo would make if they made instruction manuals in 2022 hopefully Uh, maybe maybe yeah i mean if yeah if nintendo released a game that was as intentionally obtuse as tunic ended up i would be fascinated and um absolutely delighted that's also a very good point um uh anyone else got thoughts on manuals that they liked that maybe were referenced in tunic uh i didn't really have any i wasn't as involved in deciding what goes into the manual in fact andrew i feel i feel withheld this information from us was like (laughs) there was information going in that we were not privy to and we had to learn our own later on so for all you players at home yeah we played the game too because andrew wouldn't tell us any of the secrets so (laughs) it it was was, uh please i was gonna say there's definitely some stuff like right towards the end like i didn't even realize this was in the manual (laughs) (laughs) that's gotta be exciting as a for like your day-to-day like there's not a lot of surprises in my work right now but if I was to find a section of the game I'm working on, I didn't know about, I'd be pretty hyped. Yeah, it was it was an ongoing um, trend. It was like a repeating trend throughout development over like over the seven years as Andrew would put things in the build or put things in the manual or whatever, and he just wouldn't tell us. And then we'd find it months after it was put in, and I'm like, Andrew, you have to tell us these things. <laughs> like, yeah, it's. I mean, it wasn't. I mean, sometimes it's intentional. Like, oh, I won't spill the beans to see if this you know lands properly like how does this feel do you get the thing that it was going for yeah. you know sort of a preliminary play test sort of thing but 
Kevin needed to make sounds for everything, right? <laughs> so if there's just stuff that happens in the game that is utterly silent, it's because I was like, oh, shoot, I forgot <laughs> to put that in the Slack. There Andrew, is, are your commit there changes is, just like a winky face? Or like, what do you put when you... <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, those are... The, 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 the Git history must be sacred. Okay, um, good. It's more like the patch yeah. notes... Uh, format these days is like change things with the thing yeah <laughs> it's like oh, okay I got it. Little bit minor improvements made to the game yeah there was at least one uh, one streamer i watched open a secret door i did not know was there huh. <laughs> wait what yes. a streamer like after the game was out? the game launched like on launch day or the day after or something they opened uh, a secret door um, in, in the West Garden. In the it? West Garden, exactly. Yeah. Right. I think Whoops, you know the one. Sorry. And <laughs> I, I reused the sound for that. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, and it had sound, and I was like, oh, and the, the streamer knew I was in the chat, and I was like, oh, I did not put sound in that door. Like, I didn't even let the door existed. <laughs> so, That's so interesting. Sound, at least. What, a, what a nebulous <laughs> game for both the people working on it and the people playing it. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on there. Anyways, but I guess the, the, to, to come back to your question, one, one manual that stands out in my mind was the tech tree for Civilization 2. Mm. Didn't make it into the game. There's no reason to put it in Tunic, but if I think back in time, that's one that I was like constantly just had open next yeah. to the keyboard. And, and I mentioned Civ 4 desk. earlier. I put the Civ 4 one like above my desktop as a kid just so I knew where I was going. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I remember the manual for uh, the Commander Keen game, Aliens Ate My Babysitter. Because the game had copy protection where it would ask you to look up some detail about an enemy from the manual in order to, to launch it. So that's oh, yeah. probably yeah, the, the only reason I looked at it. But it, would, it had all like descriptions of all the different enemies and it was very cute. The primordial yeah, yeah. soup of the online season pass or yeah. whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as far as the tunic manual goes, I did work very hard to make it look like it was uh, printed and give it that texture. Because originally uh, Andrew had sort of baked that in and then we went to tra to translate the game to other languages we couldn't do that anymore so it's like how do i make this dynamically look like it's been printed on paper um, you did an exceptional job <laughs> from from bottom left corner to top right corner how many pixels is one spread out of the instruction manual like uh, the raw file i mean if that's something you know or could find it, out. it's um so i looked at it recently mm. um and uh the I think like it's 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 decent, but the thing is we could get away with a slightly lower resolution for the source files because um, of Eric's <coughs> halftone shader. Mm. Um, and also, so there's a there's a few layers with that. This is not necessarily a, a, a question, and it's not. It's, I don't have the pixel values in front of me right now, but there is a a, a version of the manual that I, I have in this office somewhere that is blank. It is a, an empty, it's not the manual, it's just a, whatever it is, 55, 56 page uh, booklet that was stapled together and then covered in coffee stains and ripped up and retaped and stapled. Uh, and then I scanned every page, huh. um, which in and of itself was a tricky thing to do because scanners are configured to take, you know, wrinkles and stains and minor discolorations and ignore them mm -hmm. right? it's looking for the text and it wants a nice clean result and so it took a fair amount of fiddling to make sure that it was actually capturing the the grunge and distressing on each page and then that is applied with eric's halftone shader on the source art uh, and it's all composited together like live at runtime huh that's incredible I mean, I have some more questions about the manual, but um, 
in, in terms of Tunic's uh, overall player experience, uh, in the in that game rant uh, interview, Andrew also said, "quote uh, There are lots of games out there that try to evoke nostalgia because they look and play and sound like classic games. But it was really that feeling of wonder and exploring the unknown that I wanted to capture. And that's really interesting to me. We talk a lot about on this podcast nostalgia uh, as not necessarily a great thing to go for in games. Like when Golden I just got re released last week, uh, I think a bunch of people realized how much we'd learned about making FPSs in twenty years." Um, with Tunic, you're, you're not you're not you you have a very distinct style. You're not going for like the pixel art and the the, the sound design is a lot more modern than those games. So it is very specifically just like that feeling of literally opening the manual in front of the TV, like the TV shrinks out in the game, which I loved, and, and just trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, so how much harder it, w was it to capture a feeling you got from an old game than just a visual or mechanic or something like that? Uh. Hmm. Very. <laughs> That's uh, hard. I, I mean, yeah, it was like that was the the core idea of the game, and the game took a long time to make because I think that's what we were trying to capture. Um, nostalgia is a tricky thing because it's um, it, it is a, a, a scarily short distance from um, back in my day, like things were better <laughs> when they definitely weren't, right? Which is maybe a, yeah, it's sort of a a dangerous uh, philosophy to to hold when it comes to things, but. Uh, I, I think the the way that Tunic production sort of like lucked out, uh, it, that one of the many ways that it lucked out was that the beginning point of it was thinking about the emotion of playing those games, and the 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 notes that I have from I guess like eight nine years ago now um, are listing things that evoked a particular feeling and trying to articulate what that feeling is as opposed to um you know i want to make something that's just like super metro i don't want to make something that's just like linked to the past and trying to like unpack what that feeling is and maybe alternate routes of getting there which is yeah sort of like heady and philosophical and and uh, maybe not a, an especially good answer but um it it was certainly a challenge kevin eric anything you want to add i just want to say like nostalgia is is a confusing and complicated thing like because i think something that the game can do is probably evoke those feelings in somebody who hasn't even had like played those old games because they're younger right so um i know like if you look at the youtube comments of any like piece by wc or something people will always be saying this makes me nostalgia for like a time that never actually happened or that kind of thing so i, I don't know what to do with that but i think that's there is a way to to evoke those kinds of feelings was at least one. It's called Tunic. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm curious what your favorite item in Tunic is. And I will just say mine, just like Hades, is the uh, What's everyone else? <laughs> oh, shit. Sorry. Uh, I'll put a spoiler tag up front of this show. But um, it is the... the, the yeah, no, yeah, here. I'll block that out. Uh, yeah. What is all of your individual favorite items and why? I guess I don't know if we don't want to spoil. Should we skip that one? No, no. I um I like the it's an item called the lure, um, which is uh, I don't know appealing visually. I think. Mm. Um, so I think I think that's probably mine. Kevin, Eric. Uh, I I spend a lot of time on Twitch, uh, watching people play and like interacting and so forth, and I think. My favorite item is probably the laurels, just 
for people's reaction consistently upon getting them. And it's just mm. so much fun to because the game is just like what happened what is this where am i the game and that's as far as all the things in the game that make people ask that question either to themselves or out loud or whatever that's the one for which the answer is provided immediately and it's it's so fun to just yeah. go like oh my god and they also learn like what else it can do like as soon as they leave that area and stuff right so it's uh perhaps not my well, I guess sound-wise, it was pretty important to get it right because once you get it, you're just zipping all over the place, right? And you're hearing the sound a thousand times. So it was fun to design and important to design. So it stands out in memory for that reason as well. Mm. It's, a, it's a it's a fun little thing, Andrew. Nice work. <laughs> I, I was going to say from from like a the perspective of uh, fixing bugs and uh, that kind of thing, the laurels were, the, were probably the biggest headache. Because <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, my, my favorite item is probably the piggy bank, just because the first time somebody does it, it just the, the animation that plays, it's, uh, I think it's very delightful. Excellent. And if anyone at home is wondering what any of this is, you should play Tunic. Um, yeah, worth, maybe worth mentioning, too, is that the piggy bank used to be an actual piggy bank. Like it was a, the, yeah. the model for the item was a pig. <laughs> and uh, so it was a little, I, I feel that it was a little more... Um, guessable, <laughs> you know what what this thing might be when you pick it up. You're like, oh, it's like it's a pig shaped thing, and you use it and smash it. And you're like, oh, okay, got it. But now that no one wants to change it a bit, it's not as clear. And I'll see I'll see people like late game still haven't used it because they're like they're too scared to see what it'll do. Or they, like, I might need it one day or something, right? So it's, it's kind of funny that uh, that change had that that knock on effect too. That item also. Uh plays a, a big part maybe it doesn't anymore but for a while it was playing a big part in uh speedrun techniques mm. because it would interrupt certain animations yeah i don't know if it's still used or not it's, it's changed it's changed so much but it yeah it's a weird one i should have looked up some tunic speedruns before this i feel like it with the all the different movement abilities it'd be pretty wild <laughs> yeah just the layout of the game where you can sort of find yourself in places you're not supposed to be pretty early on i mean kevin's a, a speedrunner and we've got another speedrunner on the qa team and so from the very beginning we knew that there was going to be interest in that and so we we put extra effort into like there are items that are basically just there for speedrunners excellent Personally curious uh, if there was any contention about whether or not the game should be paused while you're doing different things like swapping out items or uh, the the map. Like I know certain times it pauses, certain times it doesn't. I was wondering how contentious like should this be paused or not was throughout Tunic's development for like screens like that. It did pause for a while for sure. Like on opening your inventory, mm. it definitely did yeah, pause maybe. gameplay. We went back and forth and had a bit of a, a discussion over that, and I think in the end we decided that that it was more fun to allow the world to continue while you were in your menu. 
that's yeah. i was gonna say an unexpected uh, thing i really enjoyed from tunic was like in a boss fight just sprinting behind a thing opening my thing swapping out a new thing i had ammo for on like getting back in and finishing it like pulling all that off is like the most tense like 60 to 90 seconds of tunic for me <laughs> Yeah, that's a high level play for sure. I think the part of it came down to um, the idea of a, a loadout. So choosing, like there was, we spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, preferences about how you, we want to make sure that there are some items that are you know, good in certain situations when fighting a particular boss or whatever, but maybe not necessary. And so there's a little bit of um, personal preference there and so deciding and making strategic decisions about like well i'm going to keep this item on this button because that's really important now i've got one left because i definitely need this to be my sword or, or whatever and if the game paused and you were able to do that arbitrarily then it would become a little bit more mechanical and, and less interesting i think that was yeah, a big conversation around breath of the wild too because it looks ludicrous when you're following and you, you just pause and then staff up or get all your health and stamina back and then keep going like everyone's like oh this is a bit silly but yeah. A different sort of thing, I guess. I mean, right. it's like Skyrim, yeah. just like, oh no, I'm fighting a dragon. Let's take a quick moment to, in zero seconds, eat 99 apple pies in order to become healthy again. I just had a random thought there. The That experience of running behind the thing, swapping stuff out and going out is exactly why I love the combat encounters in Last of Us. <laughs> and I mm. wonder, that's got to be a similar feeling thing that like you were mentioning earlier. Mm. I'm curious which paths secret paths in tunic are especially your favorite and i realize i'm asking spoiler questions so i'll throw a big spoiler take at the stop but i'll bleep out the and there uh <laughs> my favorite time. personally when i found the one path that goes uh from the monastery to the peak that i was at like way earlier like i got up there it was like oh, i can't do anything here forgot about it and then found that one path from the monastery and it was like oh my god i'm back here it, like blew my mind are there any paths like that that elicit that that are your favorite in tunic uh I, I like that one. I think that's probably the biggest one because that's the one that turns the entire world into like a circuit, basically. Um, and that was in the design from very early. Like the, the way that the camera, all the camera rotations that happen on that are internally consistent so that you've done a sort of 360 around the world once you've managed to do that loop. Huh. Um, uh, so that that definitely took some doing. I, I like, um, I think there's one very early on which is the most, I think, deliberately designed. There's a bridge, you, your eye is drawn because of the lines of the stairs and the bridge, and there's an item on the other side of it. And every, we're, doing, we're pulling out every trick in the book to make sure you don't notice that you could just slip around this one corner. I think also that is the, that is the version of those little paths that makes people go, hey, wait a second. And then they start nosing around a lot more at that point. It's, yeah. it's like the, the bombable wall in Zelda 1, except you don't have to bomb every wall. You just have to think a little harder about what you're looking at. Yeah, on like a smaller scale, I, I like the frog cave for that because you sort of come into it to like the main hub room, not realizing it's the hub room until you've gone all the way around and come back to it from an entrance mm -hmm. you didn't see. Um, and totally. it, it really changes sort of your understanding of the space and how it's connected. And I think in, the, in like the original, we kind of completely redid that that level but the original one still had that feature and that was the one thing I was like i really want to keep that because when i when i played it like the, the first version that that was what really stuck out to me yeah this was yet another thing that andrew did not tell at least me i don't know about you eric but it, you, know, you were you were decorating levels and stuff so perhaps you saw a little more than i did but yeah i was not told any of this stuff while playing so every <laughs> time i'd be play testing a new thing or even you know it's no longer gray boxed and now 
this like maybe this shortcut even existed in the gray box version and it was it was it was very apparent there's a path there so i've played the path already but then i played the the fully fleshed out version of the same level and i'm like oh my god i didn't didn't know this path was here for some reason my brain just forgot what it had done previously but uh yeah i think that all that aside though there was a lot of me flying around in, in the Unity viewer to see if there were things I hadn't seen before or things I should be covering for sound or ambience or whatever. And in the, the the main like big overworld area you start the game in, there was a massive path underneath the ground. And I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> I had to go to get Andrew. And I was like, is there a waterfall path here? And he's like, lol, yes. <laughs> so it's... And there's no there's no real reason for it to exist, but it's just like, it just I, th- I think was consistent with this idea of, hey, it's a waterfall. There's secrets behind waterfalls. That's how that's how video games work. And also just the idea that yes, player, if you uncover these, if you pull this stone up and look underneath, there will be something there for you. We're gonna try and make that the, the case as often as possible, even if it's nothing particularly interesting under the stone. It's just there is something there for you to so, say. Yeah, we we see you. Nice work. We you know, keep keep. Keep looking under rocks wherever you can, right? We're behind waterfalls. Behind waterfalls. Personally, I'm glad there was because I hate every game that doesn't put something behind the waterfall. So, <laughs> strong agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tunic features a, a no fail mode, correct? I didn't use it, but uh, saw it in the menu. <laughs> um, I was curious if there was any deliberation on the team about even including a mode like this. Uh, previously, I've talked to the Cuphead devs about accessibility and they're like so against it in so many ways that bother me but for you guys was there any like no it's ruining our creative vision or like tension about having that mode in there uh eric worked on cuphead it needs to be said i did work on cuphead Um, oh shit i'm sorry no that's okay i uh that was something that i kind of pushed back against but like that's i wasn't in that that kind of role i was the uh make things work thing but I, i think the way that game turned out was it's just like a different approach to that kind of thing um, and it worked well for what they were trying to do. Well, I would argue, um, I would argue, worked better. If, that's a whole. <laughs> what were you gonna say, Andrew? <laughs> um, I so early on this idea that like, oh, it's a game that's this, you know, player agnostic artifact that is if it's if it's hard, it's hard, and and that's just the way it is. Uh, was certainly something that I, th- I I thought originally, but I I feel like any amount of serious consideration that is put into something like that um, means that all, all of that falls away and you realize like no of course of course just put a mode like that in there why not right who the uh, uh, the the fact is is that people who like a challenge will not use the mode and people who are not interested in the combat or are you know unable to engage with that for any reason, it's nice for them to have it, right? Yeah. And so if you do the the calculus, like in the grand spreadsheet, everybody's happier when this thing is here. It doesn't, I think there's this fear that its existence somehow diminishes the experience of people who don't use it, mm. which is ludicrous. Um, and so I think, yeah, absolutely have that in yeah. there. Try, try to accommodate folks if you and can. And I think yeah, the, like the, I've heard from a few people who have like played 99% of the game with it off, but then just ran into one part that was, that they just were finding frustrating and couldn't get past and, and turned it on for that. And I think that's also valid. Yeah, just accessibility features in general. I mean, Celeste, I worked on as well, and we have the assist mode in there, various various features you can turn on, kind of have a spectrum of difficulty or a spectrum of allowances to accommodate for 
a given disability, whatever the case may be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we actually, we put in uh, the the sequence assist too for is that what it's called, Andrew? Is that right in Tunic? I think it's what it's called. Yeah. yeah. So it's, there's a without we don't need to necessarily get into details, but there's a late game thing that you can do that uh, is particularly challenging, mm-hmm. and there's a, a, a specific accessibility option that will like appear at the appropriate time if you request it. Yeah, it just allows for. Um, it accommodates for certain people who might not be able to input things rapidly and accurately. And like, why does that matter if that's in there and I don't need to use it personally, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, biggest, the biggest pushback or the biggest cr- criticism or complaint we got for, say, Celeste Sys Mode being a, a famously difficult game, it's like kind of what the game is, mm-hmm. is that, oh, well, if I get a golden berry, I finish a chapter without dying, and then someone else does it and they have a system mode on. Well, now my achievement is somehow invalidated, like that like it didn't happen or something, because they did it and they have the same achievement pop up. And yeah, it's just, just well, who my answer to that is okay, well, I have two options. I can let more people play the game, or you can be a little upset. <laughs> like and so it just it just seems like a nonsense uh position to hold. And I think once people realize and I've, I've talked to people like that who have that opinion and, and i explained like hey well here's a person who has dealt with a certain disability their whole life and now they can play the game they can have the same kind of fun that you're having but difficult for them is just like down here it's a different rung of the ladder and who cares <laughs> who cares <laughs> about right. rung is different you know so yeah I'm, I'm these days i feel like there's there's a lot more i mean wonderfully so there's a lot more awareness and uh, more pushes for accessibility features in games in general and i yeah i'm 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 very much on the lookout to to add more whenever we can along that line uh, one of the the arguments i hear from people on twitter which is now you should have or hear arguments is that it it adds time to development and it comes in at the end the celeste devs have gone on record saying it was like two days to implement and then a week or two to test it was quick how long was the no fail mode in Tunic uh, from start to end to get in, and then maybe that sequ- sequence uh, assist you mentioned too? Like, was that a, a much cumbersome to the development at all? Uh, I think once we had the, uh, I I think writing the options menu was some of the most fun, like pure programming that I've had, just because it's like, oh, it's all these like nested delegates, <laughs> and it looks at, Eric, you worked on that too. Yeah. It was pretty, and anyway, it was just like, oh, and now we have this system. We're adding like a no fail mode to the profiles. Actually, really easy. Um, so that was straightforward. The sequence assist required like actual like UI and new localization and stuff like that. So it was more involved, but it you know it's 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 worth it. Yeah, I think I think okay. with the no fail, there was there was a certain part of the game that we overlooked at first. That like, oh, wait, if if you can't die here, this kind of messes it up. And we had to sort of <laughs> so we had to special case a couple of things, but it was it was not too bad, I don't think. Yeah, in the grand scale yeah. of things, like extremely tractable um, uh, uh, to do items. You hear that, developers? I know you're listening. Uh, <laughs>
You guys told Inverse, I think this was an Andrew quote, when playing games, I love feeling like I got away with something. Um, and this is a feeling I liked a lot in uh, in Tunic as well. The first time I like grabbed a guy close to an edge and he just fell, I'm like, wait, can I just can I just do this now? Is this legal? Uh, was, was there any uh, particular got away with it moments that were like the most designed to feel like wait, no, I shouldn't be allowed to do this. Like, I'm like probably a bad way to ask the question. Like, was there one of those moments that most players get because it was so designed that way to feel like you just did something illegal? Uh, ooh, that's a good question. Uh, Kevin's watched a lot of streams, so I'm interested to, to hear his answer. I think that one of them that comes to mind is um, uh, going into some late game areas, whether that's the the quarry or maybe even the swamp um there's a lot of careful design about making sure that you could go to those places and mess around and like find treasures and get absolutely worked by the enemies there um and there's special consideration for not being able to have your save locked into those places mm. like there's mechanics like i was actually going through some notes the other day and i found like the slack message where i was thinking oh i have this okay i've got this all figured out now this this system about how to like make sure people can't lock their saves into particular places and this this was quite early on relatively speaking but it was the um uh like fuse sort of system the the black monoliths and all of that mm. and how it tied into the rest of the mechanics of the game and so i think that's one that is pretty large scale and deliberately designed like you're sort of subtly encouraged to go past this thing that says forbidden gate do not enter um to have a taste of what's to come yeah you got to play uh you got to play tunic like you know that that arthur meme where dw is looking at the no dw sign he's like well i can't read like that's how you got to play tunic. <laughs> exactly the yeah to to speak to your your mention of of watching streams and such andrew the i think i just stop and think about this for a second but i i I believe the most common one would be just muscling through the depths of the quarry despite having zero HP and not being able to see anything or hear anything. And some players are like, you know what? I see what you're doing, developers. You know, screw you. I'm going to go this anyways. <laughs> like they, they, they fully see. They were saying, hey, turn back now. You are not. Something is amiss. <laughs> Something's not quite right here. But they'll get. I mean, some are just so stubborn and they just get through it. And if you get through it and get far enough past it, you can have your health back. Absolutely. So it's it's interesting seeing that happen. And then, of course, later on in the game, invariably they find or realize that the thing they had in their inventory the whole time would have made it easier. They just didn't use it. Whoops. <laughs> it's, it's also a special moment in of itself, right? Mm -hmm. So I think uh, it's... It, it's probably that there there you said um like what is what's one that many players experience or mm -hmm. most I, i'm not sure that that's a common one but it's probably the most common of the of the you know forbidden gate do not enter kind of thing people roll down there and it's like yeah well maybe i can do it though i don't know um the less common ones would be things like speed runs where we say oh yes you can you can kill this boss with one special trick uh, you know, developers hate this guy. What do you think? No, it's, it's it's like it is one weird trick, but we were fully aware it's there. And in fact, speedrunners have, in some cases, found new methods of achieving that same thing we designed in there hmm. that are faster or more consistent or accommodate for like weird frame rates and stuff. So they cheated. Yeah, you cheat. uh, yeah, they're they're cheating. They're, they're cheating the cheat exactly. But it, on the whole, at at its core, 
yeah, we knew that you can kill this boss in one hit, and that's totally fine. And I'm, we're glad you're doing it because it makes, makes for a, a more fun viewing experience on awesome games done quick. You know, mm-hmm. no sweat. I feel like those players who push through the quarry with three hearts also enjoy like eating peas with a knife and stuff like that. <laughs> it's very self-inflicted. I think uh, uh, just the the moment you realize that a lot of enemies you can you just run past them. You can you don't need. Oh, to that's deal true. Yeah, what, just slip yeah. When by. you realize that, like, oh, I can just climb this ladder and I'm and then it can't get to me, and that mm-hmm. opens up like a big. Or like, oh, I can get through this way faster now, and I don't have to worry about this, and now I can get to this other area with more health and that kind of thing. Definitely the one. soul's cheese. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the boss run, really run. Uh, did anybody uh, on the team go to the Game Awards? How was it? I'm always yeah, curious. Yeah. I've, never, I've never known anyone to go. Was it a good time? Any fun stories? It's, it's like a, it's a weird spectacle every time mm. I've gone, and it, it's so fun to go. It's, it definitely is long. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a big marketing event, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's like gauche to to say that out loud. I think it's pretty clear. There's a ton of trailers, mm-hmm. so it is exciting to kind of be in that space and have these rabid fans all around you who are like just stoked for the new Persona or like or the new Smash character or like whatever the thing, like whatever the the flavor of the week is, right? Mm-hmm. So the that that's the the main thing. The other, th- it's just so much. It's just hilarious to like see the Game Awards gets like who they got for the award announcements it's like here he is al pacino it's oh like hilarious God. al pacino is <laughs> so, it's just ugh. the most the most game awards get to have ever been gotten you know so it's it's a it's a fun time for that reason and um yeah it's uh i haven't been able to grace the stage too many times but it's yeah of course it's always fun to win stuff naturally so i'm not going to hope for the best right yeah well where one traitorous canadian jaw failed tunic uh the lovely community at CanadianGameDevs.com stepped in. <laughs> Eric, you told yeah. Game Developer, uh, quote, with the manual pages specifically, a lot of them do have essential information, and those ones might be in obvious spots where you'd find them. Some of the other ones might be more difficult to find, and we can precisely tune how much knowledge they gain from that by where we place those things, curate the way the player teaches or reaches these understandings about the world and the game itself. Uh, I'm wondering if you could provide a, a good concrete example of when a page... Uh, in the manual was tweaked or moved or the information on it was changed as part of that balance of like this page needs to give you just this much information at this point in your journey roughly uh i think that one of the most important pages early on is the one that teaches you about upgrades and Mm. i i feel like that one did move around a bit if i remember right because we want to make sure that they find it right Um, but we also want it to feel like they're surprised by it and like they had to at least go somewhere and get it right so it's, it's sort of a it's a difficult balance there to make it feel like oh this is something i had to work to get but also uh they need to find it because it's an essential thing right that page was the one when like i was playing i like wait they put the how you upgrade on it. i was like wait i had to start texting people i was like did they really put is this what this game is like that was the page for me um how about you kevin andrew any particular page tweaks that you remember uh, losing sleep over or spending a lot of time on uh, the the document that I have to plan out the content of the pages and where they are found mm. uh, ended up being uh, just like a, an enormous catastrophe. It was <laughs> one of the most useful planet documents that I have. It's just organizationally, um, it was extreme. Like it, it, 
extremely, let's say, like uh, uh, scattershot, lots of like a red line string aesthetic, you know, like uh, and it was so useful because it was so chaotic. uh, And the the chaos to usefulness is because um, things were changing so often and new ideas were being poured into it that there was no time to like make it pretty it, it existed as like this this um this useful mess and some of those ones like um like eric brought up the 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 one where you learn how to upgrade your stats like the question of w- how much of this is in localizable text or, or like english text mm. um uh, if you seek to increase your power or however it's phrased at the top, like that very, it has to be very deliberate. Like it's not, it's sort of an interesting um, uh, cheat is that it's very hard to get people to read text in a video game, especially when it's trying to explain something important to them. But if you, if you make uh, everything just hidden enough that people have learned that they have to pay attention and that it's usually in this mysterious glyph language, whenever you choose to deploy actual localized text, mm. people are more likely, I think, to spend some time uh, looking at yeah. it um there the late game puzzles like there's a spread as well that shows the character thinking or saying a particular thing in front of a particular particular location and exactly how that was laid out and how explicit it was and what the marginalia indicated and how it indicated it was was tricky kevin laughed at that did you have something to add <laughs> i'm just laughing at how vague andrew's speaking is. <laughs> there's a certain thing in a certain yeah. place with a certain expression in their face and you might think that yeah it's uh i i do know there was a lot of a lot of the conversations on our slack were based around trying to find this perfect balance between just obscure as hell and absolutely spoon-fed mm. i mean you mentioned the upgrading your your stats page like that's a great example is like is this do we need to be more explicit are players gonna have a bad time because they aren't finding this thing or are they gonna be like oh my god amazing i feel so clever i found the thing like the that's second what one want to happen the second yeah, one <laughs> so ideally yeah but some players discover it so late and i mean even in that case it's a bit like oh my god like i should have known the whole time maybe it's a me problem and not a game problem mm. but it's hard to say it's 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 tough you'll, you'll watch it's a it's a challenging game to play test because that moment only happens once, so you only get that data point a single time per person playing the game. Yeah. Huh? And it's, never considered that. Yeah, it's it's not like. I mean, I I think of being on say like a PAX show floor, and I bring up Celeste again as an example. On on the first chapter, there is uh, a fork in the road where you can carry on to the right and finish the chapter, or go to the left and meet a side character. Right. And on day one of PAX, showing the game, like this first chapter, something like 10% of players were meeting the character. And uh, Maddie Thorson, the lead dev, was like, mm, it should be more like 50. It should be like a coin flip if they see him or not. And just made one small little change, and suddenly the next day, yeah, it's like 50%, 50% of players are seeing this, this person. But that's like, you're seeing it like eight minutes into gameplay for some people, right? It's not like yeah. you're waiting hours for a single person. So it was really tricky to uh to try and hit that that nail on the head every time i i'd like to hope we i mean i I didn't personally i didn't do much but mostly andrew over here but i'd like to think that uh the team of the whole did an okay job across the board i hope
the instruction manual is my favorite part of Tunic just from a design perspective. I'm curious, was it always the a set size or did it, like I imagine it just growing as you're like, okay, they need this information, we add a page, they need this information, we add a page, and it just grows. Did, is that how it went or was it growing and shrinking throughout development as you're like, ah, oh, we gave them too much, pull it back in? <laughs> uh, early on, there was a very rough draft where I just said, oh, you know, this is what it's going to be like. This is probably how many pages it's going to be. And it was much, much smaller. Um, and the process of there, there was a there was a point after that where, yeah, there was a little bit of flexibility. How many pages should there be? This is where the player learns this. This is where the player learns that. Um, and it was built around beats like information to deploy and important concepts right like it needs to teach the player this and it needs to teach it to them at this point approximately like maybe they find it early blah 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 yep. um, but at a certain point that really needed to get locked down because adding a page is a is a surprisingly complex task hmm. the, the the one of the things that was really important is that the manual be have like a, a physical presence like we talked about the distressing and the halftone shader and everything like that but there's also things like um the the book has a middle and there are staples there, yeah and that's because it's the center of the book and so if you want to shoehorn in a page with some extra information on it um you need to add the opposite side of that page right because that is huh. there's there's an opposite side of that individual leaf um, it also disrupts the spread on either side of you're it. Actually so you might have had, you're actually adding four pages instead of one. You're adding, yeah, oh, no. you're actually adding two more pages at the other side, which disrupt two more spreads. Oh, no. So that's why this document was so valuable and things were constantly being shuffled around and rearranged because the number of pages really, like, it was a big deal. It was like a day-long design process of shuffling stuff around and second-guessing and... Uh, and so, yeah, it sort of annealed into this this cohesive thing. And any time a new piece of information had to be added, it was like, well, this, cram, cram it in. It's going to be a yeah. bit of a pain. Yeah, where yeah. can we cram it in? Um, yeah, uh, one thing I think is really interesting about the, the manual is the, is the map pages because, like, you can get really different feelings from, like, discovering a map of an area that you don't even know exists yet or, like, completely exploring a space and then finding a map of it and uh i think the game kind of plays with both those things and that depends on on what the player does as well so there's lots of uh really interesting kind of things that can come out of that and uh, i think the the decision to actually show where you are on the map was made really really late too um i think for for a long time we were thinking that no this is a physical page and we can't do that right so why did you decide to like this book has to function like as a physical book with staples in the middle, but the tunic moves around the pages. Like how, how did that come? Cause he seems to be wanting to stick to that realism so much that adding this magic player icon, uh, they seem contradictory to me. So how, how did that all shake out? I, I actually don't remember off the top of my head. I don't know if anybody else is like, I, I certainly thought like it, in the end, I think it's cool and appealing. It's sort of magical. Like it's an extra sort of wonderful discovery for people to realize that that's the case. And also it's sort of fun to implement, I think. Um, but I don't, I don't remember the exact yeah, moment. I, I think was, uh, it, there was, it was just like common feedback of people wishing that they could see where they were because they were having trouble orienting themselves and that kind of thing. So it was, a lot of it was just like, oh, we want to make the experience better. I've played some games that go the opposite direction and have the map, like you find maps and they're in different orientations and you never know where you are on it. And they have, 
and like I really like that stuff. But some of those games, like some of those common comments I see, are like I hate the map system. So it's, it can be a polarizing thing if you you force people to sort of orient themselves on maps. Not everyone is as good as everybody else at that kind of thing. So I think having that it's a it's a neat detail to, to notice, and it also just makes the the experience a little bit uh, easier on people. Yeah, it may drift into the territory that Andrew was mentioning earlier too, like nostalgia versus back in my day, games were obs- like kind of obnoxious. <laughs> you know, that's it's uh, maybe obnoxious isn't the thing we need to do. Yeah. It's not to say this would be like to that level, but if we can add in features here and there that make people's lives easier and let them see the core of the gameplay and like that's the, the reason they're playing, allow them to do that and not have to go over these unnecessary hurdles, then that might just be the better option. Yeah, like like the, the fact that the pages are placed in the world, this is another thing that we can do, and it's sort of interesting that we couldn't do it with a real physical manual, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, back in my day, we didn't have player <laughs> icons on the map, and we always got lost. <laughs> I don't really know how to ask this question. It feels kind of weird, but to me, the camera, or like my view in Tunic is almost like, a narrator like it's another character uh in the game and the narrator is is giving me just enough information like a narrator in a story that would push me to like fill in blanks and like i'm like okay why am i not seeing the edge of this why is the camera not moving when i go to this edge what does that mean and is that was that intentional at all or am i reading in a lot to things like it feels like it's me and the camera and every time i go into a room I'm like all right camera what are we doing in here what are you showing me what am i gonna nudge on uh what do you think about that uh, I- I, I would go so far as to say that the the camera is, uh, yeah, is a is is we the designers communicating with you the player, um, because the the world exists as this sort of yeah like it's this object and you're exploring it and if you were exploring it entirely objectively then it would be like you know, the camera would always be locked on the player character there would be no zoom or anything like that or you would have to control it, um, but that's not the case there is very intentional design in how the camera works. And sometimes it is for drama to show you sweeping around something or revealing a secret to you. Um, And sometimes it's meant to be very subtle, like, hey, we're actually going to nudge the camera a little bit in this direction once we know you've done this because here's where you're supposed to go next. And those are situations where it's intentionally... um, uh, sort of as light a touch as possible for sure. Like you almost wouldn't even notice those like coming back to an area. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah. and a lot of the, the hidden paths in the game, like wouldn't work if, if we had a different camera system, right? Like a lot mm-hmm. of that is, is sort of concealed by the perspective. Um, yeah. Like they are one pixel off from, you knowing there's a gap there. <laughs> <laughs> the camera cannot move. I love ending with that. And this is a good game to do this with. I always ask, is there a detail in Tunic that you wish people noticed they might not? For example, uh, like in in Outlast, the second clock actually moves with the minute clock. And I stood there and looked at that the whole time. And 0.01% of players are going to do that. But they made sure the minute hand moved for the 0.01% like me who would stand there. Is there something in Tunic you threw in there that... Uh, and you mentioned in, in interviews in the past that there are things you make for no one to see. That you're just like, hey, I'm going to throw this in so no one can see it. What's one of those for each of you? I, w- I would love to know. Kevin, you got you to gotta talk about the, the, the markup on the OST. The markup? What, you mean like the, the secret secrets? Uh, markup? No, no. I mean, I, so I, I, will, I will praise uh, Kevin um, and um, what did I do? Uh, Terrence Lee and Janice Kwan. <laughs> um, 
because I had nothing to do with this and I think it is phenomenal. But there are certain effects in the game, oh. um, certain effects that will, and the, no one's going to, I mean, yes, people will notice, but quote unquote, no one will notice. They are tuned to the key of the song and not just not just like oh this whole song is in the key of f on a bar by bar uh basis uh kevin and his team marked up the ost so that at any point when a particular sound effect happens and maybe it's a contiguous sound effect that is maybe this ethereal sound that plays in the background that you the player have control over Mm. um it will follow the tune of the music as this sort of like accompaniment to it entirely unnecessary and absolutely delightful okay i now i now know what you're talking about (laughs) i now of course know what you're talking about uh yeah it was the kind of task that was extremely tedious but i think the (laughs) results are really good so i'm glad that we went through the trouble of doing it but it's the kind of thing we're halfway through the complete halfway to completion i'm there like why did i why did I pitch this idea and why am I doing it? It's like it's so much work. There's three hours of music in this soundtrack. It's just kind of ridiculous. Um, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot going on there for sure. That just seems to me like one of those things that, you know, those features are like no one notices if it's there, but everyone would notice if it isn't there. Something like that. I don't that. know that people would notice it if it wasn't there, honestly. It's the kind mm. of thing it, it feels because that often is our job in, in the sound field for games. It's the kind of thing where if we're doing our job right, if, if some game we worked on gets a 10 out of 10 on IGN, then we're like, sweet, but they might not mention sound once. And in that case, we're just like, okay, cool, we did our job. Because if we'd messed something up, it may have been that 9 or 9.5 or 8.5 or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, and in those cases, they might not even know that's why it's a lower score. It's just something wasn't quite right. So, but with this though, this is just stuff on top that super doesn't need to be there. And like Andrew says, if it, if it weren't there, people would be fine. They wouldn't be complaining at all. They'd be like, oh, it's the sound of the thing when I hit the thing. Um, and you mentioned the the special item you love so much in the game. When you use that item, it's always there's always a layer of that sound effect that is in tune with the music. Same huh. thing with parrying attacks. If you land a parried, parried attack, uh, it has a note that's like in tune with the music. And... Um, what's fun about that is that there's actually two systems there. One is for things that are ongoing and, and control, controllable by the player, looping effects that need to be tracked over time and change with the music. And some are what we call like transient effects, things that just have a start, like hitting a crash symbol where it's like... Like the, the death sound in the game, like the dylan, like that stops the music, right? So or, it's not not just like that. I'm talking only for things that are tuned up, tuned up to the music. Okay. So for things like the parry, it's like ding. You have that note play, or hitting the tuning forks in the in the overworld. These things have an impact moment. So the the markup that Andrew mentioned is actually set up so that the changes happen just before the chord change. So if you hit something just before a chord happens or a chord change occurs the note that you hear ringing out will ring out into the correct chord change. So sure. it's, it's like what you call in, in, say, jazz music, like it's called a push. So you hit the note just before the chord change happens, and now it, it sounds correct as a result on the whole. Otherwise, you'd have a, the wrong note ringing out into the, the new chord change. That's the kind of thing that no one's going to notice. They might notice, like, oh, cool, stuff's tuned, but they wouldn't notice that we, we 
push things forward by like a quarter note in the in the OST markup. Mm. So there's a lot of technical stuff happening behind the scenes to make things hopefully sound right most of the time. How about you, Eric? Any, um, or sorry, Andrew, you had something to add to that? Well, I was going to say, I don't know if Eric has something in mind, but maybe Eric should talk about uh, the uh, meticulous AI of the um, fish <laughs> in the West Garden. Uh, sure, yeah. That was one of my favorite things to work on, and it was like you only ever see the silhouettes of the fish very faintly. Um, so I probably put in more effort to it than necessary, but I, I had a whole like test scene in the project that was like an aquarium that had uh, big schools of fish swimming around and um, you had this, all these systems. So they would like swim back and forth and, and like when they turn the fish bend like they're supposed to and they, mm. um, they'll, they'll, live, they'll, they'll uh, swim faster if they're, if they're accelerating and coast as they slow down. Um, and all this stuff was done for, for only two small areas in the game where you just see them <laughs> under the water and you can't actually go under the water. So, um, I don't know. I, I, I think it, but I think it does add like a nice peaceful feeling when you reach those areas and you just could sit and watch the fish if you want to, um, that kind of thing. I think like I saw one streamer. Fishing. Yeah, yeah no, one, no. exactly. One streamer <laughs> saw that and stopped and watched the fish for a long time and then concluded that there must be a fishing <laughs> minigame. <laughs> I mean, Animal Crossing has trained us to fish silhouette equals yeah. fishing. Yeah. <laughs> Surely, surely, if they put this much time and effort into making this subtle detail so wonderful, yeah. there must be something more there. Surely, if they remembered to put something behind the waterfall, they remembered to put the fishing minigame in. It's just how game design works. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, guys. Is there anything else you want to add about Tunic, about reflections of one year on the project uh, as we wrap up here? <laughs> Shrugs. <laughs> Been a cool year, I'd imagine. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's a, a very strange year, but a very cool one, yes. Did everything shake out um, as you as you'd hoped? Did did ever did the did the community pick up what you were putting down? Uh remarkably so. Like more than at least I could ever have. Yeah, the the response before. has been amazing on on Discord and also on like Twitter and all, all these platforms and on Twitch and yeah. And really really cool to watch big fans in our community too once again tunic game of the year 2022 canadian game of the year also my personal game of the year but whatever no one asked uh yeah uh thanks so much guys Is there anything you want to plug at the end i don't know when tunic 2 is coming out i assume next year maybe the year after but you could just call it two nick just put the two at the front yeah people i'm sure that's say not the first time you've heard that joke people keep saying it's just that easy exactly what else is there <laughs> Plugs. I know that um, the uh, Eric and Kevin have other projects on the go. Um, if, if you're interested in, if you've gotten this far <laughs> yeah. and you still want to play Tunic and you haven't already, even though you're spoiled dog, <laughs> you can go to tunicgate.com, sign up for our mailing list, um, and uh, get news related to it there. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I've been messing around with Pico Eight stuff lately, and I recently released a roguelike called Into Ruin, so you can check that out. Or you can check out my my puzzle game Spring Falls, which someday I will bring to Android. Um. <laughs> I think I played that game a long time. Are you... I'm gonna have to look that one up. I've definitely played that game. How about you, Kevin? Anything you want to plug? Uh, yeah. So I mentioned at the beginning of this whole uh, chat that I'm with Power Up Audio in Vancouver, and we're working on a variety of stuff. 
So um, yes, a lot of them Canadian also, so nice and nice and relevant. Uh, I mean, I guess we're on the team for all the ones we're working on, so it's at least in part Canadian <laughs> for all these projects. But we're working on Darkest Dungeon two right now. It's uh, it's it's coming up towards the finish line. It's getting there slowly. We just released Phantom Brigade with Brace Yourself Games oh, here in hell yeah. as well. No, our, and, our, our Discord's uh, been loving Phantom Brigade. Don't worry. Awesome. Yeah, it's been getting. It's another one that was. It's been a long time development, uh, tunic style, and uh, easy to to start wondering like six years in like people gonna like this <laughs> but but uh yeah the response has been fantastic so we're really happy about that we're working on um rift of the necrodancer as well with that same development team uh no further details in that one i'm, I'm allowed to share at this point but uh yeah a, a bunch of stuff oh also earthblade we're working on is the from the celeste developers it's their follow-up title winner of our community polls most anticipated canadian game yeah we, we got two out of the three is crazy yeah, yeah. Power up your audio with Power Up Audio. <laughs> oh, thanks so much. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, guys. Uh, all the links for everything just mentioned will be at the top of the show notes. And tune in next time. Au revoir. Bye. Thank you. Thanks a lot. The detail I forgot to mention was the the flower by the waterfall in the quarry. That would have oh, se- yeah. segued nicely into me plugging my, my game. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, I, re- I remember finding that because I it's it's not often that uh, I get to see something in the game that is a surprise and a delight. And that was one of them where it's like, oh, wait, what's and it was a, a sort of like calling card left by Eric in the in the design of the level, which was lovely.